you can find this FX Medicine video podcast on our Facebook page. If you'd like to know more about future interactive video podcasts, please ensure you subscribe at fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and joining me today is Amy Skilton. We'll be discussing how to influence immunity, particularly in this time. So I'd like to welcome Amy Skilton. How are you, Amy? I'm well, thank you, Andrew. How are you going? I'm very, very well. Very, very nervous. This is the first time we've done this <laughs> without having somebody directly opposite me to, to bounce off. So how's things going for you in this uh, particular time um, well, you in 2020? <laughs> I think everyone's having to make some sort of adjustment, right? And for some people, that's been really huge. And uh, certainly for this particular conversation, you know, it's a shame that we're we're not opposite one another today, but I'm so excited that we can still have this conversation and invite people in to join us at the same time. Yeah, so it's great. Oh, it's very exciting, I've got to say. The world of technology, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, so... I guess to start, I think we have to make that eth ethical um, line in the sand, if you like. In Australia, we're coming into the winter months. Mm. We are going to be talking about what we've always done as, uh, as practitioners and clinicians, and that is to help our patients through the immune challenges of the winter months, mm -hmm. whatever that immune issue be. Yes. Great. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, our immune system is an incredibly sophisticated thing. And oh, yeah. in order for it to work its best, there's a lot that we can do to optimise its activity. There's also a lot we do as human beings that can disable and disarm our immune system. And, you know, we're all human and we'll talk about, you know, what those things look like in this conversation. But, we generally, you know, when there's a time of immune challenge happening is when you want to kind of buckle down and limit as much as possible things that might suppress or disable your immune system and dial up the things we know that it needs to mount an immune response to any pathogen, whatever that is, whatever the nature of it is. But I think the reason we're having this conversation at this particular time is there is a pathogen currently impacting the globe that has a quite a unique presentation, a very aggressive and unusual uh, timeline, and appears to have a virulence that is, you know, in excess of what we would typically find with a standard respiratory tract virus that we yeah. tackled in wintertime, right? Yeah. Having said that, we all need to nourish our immune system and we need to be avoiding those things which suppress our immune system. And of mm. course, the simplest one that we have, have and do all the time is dietary intake. So yes. I guess to start <laughs> off, how can, we, how can we modulate our immune system by dietary inclusion and dietary mm. avoidance of certain foods? So look, we could probably talk for more than an hour alone on that subject. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, Hashtag Professor Lustig. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So in, in terms of that, we can't sort of go into a lot of detail, but there are some key basics that I think most people should be aware of but often aren't. And I don't want to sound like the fun police here, but if there's nothing else anyone listening here today takes away from our chat is I want you to understand how damaging sugar is for your immune system. It actually disables your immune system. Sorry if, if that's broken anybody's hearts out there. Um, and look, I, I enjoy sugar just as much as the next person. And, uh, you know, I've got my thing that I love. I'm sure we all do. But the truth of the matter is when we put in refined sugar, particularly glucose I'm talking about um, on this particular occasion and the study glucose that I'm... Glucose or fructose? 
I'm talking about glucose on this. So fructose, again, you can split up the different types of sugar and the impact on their body, but glucose specifically is almost molecularly identical to ascorbic acid, which most people know as vitamin C. So can I get nerdy on you for just a second here, (laughs) everyone? (laughs) I I want to explain, we'll talk about why vitamin C is so crucial for a, a good immune response in a little bit. But the reason why sugar is so problematic as far as an immune response goes is because eons ago, we actually were able to make our own vitamin C in our body from glucose. And it was a very simple process of doing that. However, that gene got deleted. And scientists have hypothesized that it was deleted because of an abundance of vitamin C rich food for a period of time. And here's the analogy I use with my clients. You know, when you first got a smartphone, you downloaded all the games and all the fun apps and all the whiz bang gadgets. And then over time, you worked out there were some you used regularly. And there were ones that you just They were taking up space in your phone, Um, so you delete them. So the same thing happened with that particular gene and our ability to manufacture ascorbic acid. The problem is our white blood cells, which are literally our immune cells, our immunological army, don't know it's 2020 now and we can't they can't use sugar or glucose in the same way as ascorbic acid and so they take up glucose preferentially when blood sugar is high or is raised because of a sugar rich meal or snack or you know netflix nibbles and as a result their ability to tackle pathogens bacteria for example is reduced by 75% Now, no one should or wants to be running on 25%, but, you know, in times of good health and it's not, you know, a pandemic outbreak, well, you can get away with a few Ferrero Rochers here and there. Not that I'm giving away my favourites, but at this point... White or the brown? (laughs) You know, as far as um, when something is going around that you don't want to catch, you do not want to limit your immune response down to 25% of its capability. And so keeping sugar to an absolute minimum or avoiding it entirely, I think is a key element of improving your diet to optimize immunity. And I guess the on the flip side of that, though, rather than focusing on what you shouldn't be having, I would also be encouraging you just to eat as fresh and whole food as possible. Seasonal and local is always ideal because it's most nutrient rich. Um, and really getting an abundance of fruits and vegetables, as well as if you eat meat, lean organic meats, wild caught fish, nuts and seeds, leafy greens. It's honestly not rocket science. And I'm sure if you asked any one of our, you know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, just eat a vegetable, man. (laughs) Um, But I, I do make the distinction and we need to just do this again and again and again, because people continually get caught up or confused in that word sugar. There are so many different sugars. And when we're talking about sugar, we're talking about refined sugar and additive sugars, not those that are important to immunity, like, for instance, the mannose, the ramnose, the galactose, um, uh, things like that. So, so, um, you know, we just have to continually make these distinctions as to what are we talking about. Yes, Uh, absolutely. So I'm going to ask a little question on that. To what extent... Um, does, say, regular intake of um, fizzy drinks. To what extent does that suppress our immune system? Mm. So 100 grams of sugar will disable your immune system by 75% for at least six hours. Right. Now, it doesn't have to be in the form of a fizzy drink, though. A lot of breakfast cereals that people commonly consume are very high yeah. in added sugar and refined sugar. And then if they're using skim milk, that's also very high in sugar. Um, if you are having, let's say, morning tea, you go for a skim cappuccino and a muffin. That's about 85, 90 grams of sugar right there. And what you look at if, you, if you're examining, say, the standard Australian diet, people are suppressing their immune system, breakfast, lunch, and after dinner. Yeah. 
And so are spending almost most of that 24-hour period operating well below what is ideal. Now, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy those things from time to time or watch the volume or watch the frequency. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to like, and I, don't, I hate using war analogies and fighting things, but I feel like I can't think of a more fitting one right now on the spot, oh. so I'm going to go there. Oh. But let's say you're going into battle against an enemy. In this case, it's invisible, but regardless, you want your soldiers to be fit, well-trained, armed and ready with resilience and longevity and power and speed and agility so that you come out the victor and hopefully without too many casualties. Now, you can't go into battle expecting a good outcome if you are feeding your soul on a sugar high. On a sugar high, yeah. Sugar high and a sugar low. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I've just sorry, I've just seen one question here. Hundred grams will disable the immune system by how many minutes? So it was it will disable. Thanks for your question, Alison. Um, with regards to that, so the immune suppression occurs within the first twenty to sixty minutes. And the bulk of it lasts for about six hours, but it can last up to eight hours. So I think it depends probably on a few things. I imagine women are more vulnerable because we have less muscle mass generally. And so our insulin sensitivity isn't quite as good. Um, and of course, if you have got hormonal challenges, insulin, um, blood sugar balance challenges, other metabolic dysfunction, you probably, you know, you could end up in a risky um, mm. immune suppression at even a lower dose or for a longer period of time. So, yeah, thank you very for that question. I, I, think, I think firstly the very telling thing is um, an army marches on the stomach, as you said. But um, <laughs> I, I was thinking, you know, um, comorbidities, I was thinking about those people that are at increased risk of mm. having an immune issue, particularly in this light, who is it? Diabetics. Um, so it's it's really interesting. People with diabetes is what I should have said. Um, you know, they are at increased risk of a number of of diseases, but certainly during the winter months, they're yeah. at increased risk of pneumonias and things like that. Um, let's move on though from from dietary indiscretions or dietary modulation. Yes. Um, what about things like I mean? Working from home, social mm. isolation, which is mm. the new vogue, um, <laughs> it's the new in, um, stress. I mean, yes. the, stress, the stressors placed on us. Yes. And that we also we place on ourselves in maintaining, you know, health. Yeah. Um, um, or that are forced on us in this situation. Let's go a little bit into that. Well, there's, there's actually some really important elements to touch on there. And I've just seen a question come through about wine as well. Um, but if you don't mind, I'm going to just answer one other question first on the sugar. So oh. Carol, hi, Carol. Um, thank you for your question. The question is, would there be an improvement if someone stops sugar? Will this improve immunity or is it the end of the path? Um, that is a great question. You know what the great thing is? Our body responds very quickly to either positive changes or negative changes. We can see obviously a, an immediate response with a sugar-laden meal or snack or drink that can last for the rest of the day. But if you don't eat sugar tomorrow and stay off it for the next month, your immune system is going to come back up to speed very quickly or rather the sugar-induced suppression will lift. Now, there's a lot of other things that we will talk about today about, um, that are required for optimal immune function. So avoiding sugar is kind of one of the pieces of the puzzle, if you like. Um, but please know that for anyone who's all of a sudden gone, uh oh, <laughs> I actually eat quite a bit of sugar. This isn't good. Am I doomed? No, you're not doomed. Um, and what I would also just say as a side note, um, Stopping sugar immediately is a bit like coming off caffeine and other drugs because sugar acts very much like a drug. I would just encourage you to cut down over this mm. next week yeah. and maybe find healthier, yummier alternatives um, and just ease yourself into it. There's no no massive panic. Um, but, yeah, certainly you're not doomed if you've been on a high sugar diet until now. 
Um, but going just to your question about, sorry, did you want to say something? No, no, you keep going. No, okay. <laughs> um, and the last sort of question, what, where does fructose and lactose fit in? Look, all simple sugars are really not great for your body. So I would be limiting them. Although, please don't take that as an indication that fructose in the form of fruit, whole mm. fruit is a problem. This is refined sugar, sugar that's outside of its normal food source um, and that have been added into things. So please don't worry about that. But of course, and Stevie uh, is fine from that yeah, point of yeah. view. Um, of, of course, there are those instances where fructose in, in and of, of itself should be, mm. I'm going to say, minimised, not avoided. Um, mm -hmm. If somebody's got, say, for instance, um, um, fructose malabsorption, um, mm. SIBO, irritable bowel syndrome, and they're sensitive to fructose, yeah. then obviously you've got to limit that. Um, yeah. You know, the, the um, FODMAP diet, the low FODMAP diet, for, forgive me, it's yeah. not the FODMAP yeah, diet. Yeah. It's not their FODMAP avoidance diet. Um, <laughs> it's the low FODMAP diet. Um, but um, the other one was the um, people with uh, compromised liver function. And I'm drawing particularly here because of the way that fructose is metabolised to the mm -hmm. liver first, whereas glucose is straight into the cells, if you like. Um, yes. It's got a, fructose has to be changed biochemically before it's able to be used by the body. Yeah. So let's say, you know, 30% of the community suffer from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I'd love to see that mm. stats in Australia. I think it's alcohol related, mm. but anyway. Um, mm. But people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are going to have a compromised ability to metabolise this sugar. So what sort of stressors are we placing on the body if we don't modulate that sort of sugar? Now, I don't know if you know, avoiding fruit would be the way to go, but maybe, mm -hmm. you know, minimising fruit? Yeah, so tropical fruits, late summer fruits tend to be a lot higher in carbohydrate mm. and fructose. And so everyone obviously, I guess maybe we should have said this at the start, you want to optimise your own individual biochemistry. And, you know, there'll be plenty of people who can eat fruit and it's fine. But if you have got a compromised microbiome or there's other metabolic issues going on and fruit is a bit of a problem, then you can simply aim for the lower glycemic index things, which aren't necessarily seasonal like berries. But in this case, that's where you need to get your fiber and yeah. vitamin C from and you can focus more on vegetables. So certainly this is why working with a practitioner is really helpful because they can really help work out what is an ideal immunological blueprint for you. Um, but in and of that, avoiding sugar is always going to be key. And as you say, this whole working from home and stress and the lack of getting outside is also another key piece of the lifestyle puzzle. Now, what they're noticing overseas is that 90% of people who end up on ventilators are critically low in vitamin D. Mm. And we'll talk about vitamin D in a minute and why you need it to produce your own antiviral compounds. But we get that from the sun in the summer months. Now, we are at an advantage for anyone listening who's currently in the Southern Hemisphere that we're just, you know, rounding out summer here. Autumn has definitely kicked in and our vitamin D levels are about as good as they're going to get. The reason you need to be mindful of what your vitamin D is at this time of year is it gives you a very good indication about whether you have enough stored in your body to get through winter safely or not. Now, with this whole working from home and only being allowed to leave to go do shopping, if you don't have a backyard where you can get some sunshine and you live maybe in a more densely populated area where they're really, you know, moving people on from beaches and parks um, quite aggressively, then your opportunity to make what you know little vitamin d you have left with the oh. uvb left is quite limited so that's a problem but also the stress the lack of community the lack of um, social interaction stress stress is a is a is a really a built-in tool for our body that was meant to be used very short term and it, adrenaline is a you're about to die signal from your body and floods you with adrenaline and cortisol um, mm. and increases your heart rate and all of those other things to survive whatever is about to take your life. And you either have the strength and the, the speed to run away, 
fight it off or you die. But oh, either yeah. scenario, it's over very quickly. But unfortunately, I guess as one of a more of a modern day pandemic than, you know, the dreaded, you know, what going around is that we're constantly operating under the influence of adrenaline and cortisol. Yeah. Now, yeah. cortisol, I mean, there's a couple of elements to that, but ultimately your immune system gets suppressed with stress and with lack of social connection. In fact, babies will die if they're not cuddled enough. Like that's how crucial and hardwired we are for human yeah. touch and connection. And so stress management's a really key thing and getting out in nature. Now, fortunately, we're in a country where you can still be, ex you're allowed outside to exercise. And 20 minutes is all you need to reduce your cortisol by 30%. So, and that also boosts your endorphins. If you go in the middle of the day, you've got some vitamin D manufacturing happening, assuming you've got your legs and your arms out. And so that's really important and obviously um, keeping in touch with people. Uh, the question that was earlier from Michelle asking about wine, a lot of people are drinking more at the moment. Partly it's because of boredom, partly it's because of stress, you know, wine and all alcohol actually acts at the GABA receptor and has a temporary, albeit unhealthy, anxiety-relieving effect. Now, um, white wine has higher sugar content than red and it actually depends on the varietal as well. Obviously, you've got the sweeter wines are higher in sugar. Even if it was sugar-free, alcohol does impact the immune system as well. Now, rest assured, I'm enjoying a glass of Chardonnay probably every other night too. So, <laughs> I'm thinking, what, now? <laughs> well, actually, you can't see my wine glass, can you? <laughs> so what I want to say about that is... Um, as a sugar is kind of a blanket, please avoid it as much as possible. I'm not going to apply quite the same rule to alcohol, but please know that every alcoholic drink depletes zinc, which is important for the immune system. It depletes B vitamins, it affects your microbiome, yeah. and mo that's where most of our immune system is. Over time, it wears out the GABA receptor. So there are there are better ways to cope with stress than drinking, um, and there are healthier choices. Um, out of alcohol as well. Um, just to sort of close out the sugar conversation, someone has asked where does fructose and lactose fit in? I think I did cover that already, but simple sugars out of the context of the foods they appear in is, is not great. And Steve, Sharon asked about stevia. Stevia is fine. It doesn't have a carbohydrate value and therefore doesn't trigger insulin and can't be taken up into the white blood cells instead of vitamin C. Now, Melanie has asked about vitamin C. I will cover that when we get to vitamin C. Um, honey, Graham, in order to, uh, to answer your question, how about honey? Honey's in a little bit of a gray zone. It... Um, Honey is high in natural sugars and there's no getting around that that has an impact on your nervous system and your microbiome. It's high in fructose and we know that fructose brings with it a whole host of other problems. Having said that, honey also has natural antimicrobial, anti-inflammatory and other properties that make it quite useful for sore throats and things like that. So I would limit its use as a culinary item in when you're trying to preserve immune function, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say don't use it if you've got a sore throat or a post-nasal drip and you're looking to add it to, say, an immune-boosting drink with ginger and lemon and, and things like that. Um, so just um, yeah, go The only on. other point I'd make about honey is, you know, metabolically, if you look at the Hadza tribe, during mm. the summer months they can eat as much as 30% of their calories from honey, incredibly high. But yes. they're not a but Western also... society that's sitting on a chair in, a, in an exactly. office. They're out on the plains chasing exactly. or being chased. So they're well, constantly so working. With, within 20 minutes, like if you've exercised within 20 minutes, if you eat carbohydrate or sugar within 20 minutes, you don't even need insulin to get it into the cells. It uses yeah. the GLUT4 receptors. And so you're not triggering insulin. You're not triggering inflammation. And so it's a different lifestyle. Oh, that's totally um, but I suppose we should talk about then vitamin C, do you think? Well, just before we get on to that, finishing okay. off lifestyle factors. Yes. Because they're yes. so important and we always, you know, we say we, say we know them and we just accept mm. that we know them, but we never go through them. And how often do we take as a stepwise 
methodical approach to this with every patient mm-hmm. to say, okay, mm-hmm. how is your sleep? Yeah. Now, in this situation, what we're going through, this pandemic issue, issue that we're going through at the moment with increased stressors and mm-hmm. totally mucked up sleep, how important is it for us coming into winter? Mm. Uh, it's critical. And I know it's easy if you're not in the functional medicine space to think, oh, what's getting some sleep going to do to protect me against this, you know, this virus or anything. But the truth is our bodies, uh, we mistreat them all the time (laughs) and we cut corners. Human beings are actually quite lazy by nature. We're always looking to um, improve efficiencies and do like do the bare minimum to get the most results. And unfortunately, we have been quite conditioned to just kind of burn the candle at both ends and then look for a magic pill when mm. things fall apart. Yeah. And unfortunately, you can't out ninja nature. So if you're going to disable and damage and decimate your immune system and fail to nourish your cells, you bet not getting enough sleep is going to increase your risk of catching something. It's going to mean it's going to hit you harder. It's going to take you longer to recover. And I know it sounds really pathetic to say please focus on getting enough sleep and quality sleep at the right time of night as a form of defense against something that seems so big and so scary but it's actually a fundamental piece of the puzzle as far as immune support goes i I think it's really interesting that no matter how much um, hooked you are forgive me my poor syntax no matter how hooked you are on um uh, netflixing all the time if you catch a cold or a flu, flu for women, colds for men, I'm yes. just equating <laughs> the severity there, yes, man you. cold. Um, <laughs> but if you catch a cold, the first thing that you want to do is you want to just hibernate and you just want to close off. You want to go to yes. sleep, don't bother me. You know, you you really hunker down for a short amount of time. Mm-mm. It's a telling That's- message that we should be doing this. Well, so that's nature's way of protecting the rest of your tribe. And we're all, I guess, doing it right now as far as physical distancing goes. But when we're fighting off a pathogen, whatever it is, we produce inflammatory cytokines amongst other chemicals in our body and they play a number of different roles, including communicating with the immune system. But Part of the fallout, and if you, if anyone's ever had the flu, you'll know what I'm talking about, is pain, stiffness, you become moody, short-tempered, sensitive to light, sensitive to sound sometimes, um, achy and very antisocial. And it's nature's way of driving you back to your bed because it doesn't want you wasting energy doing stuff when your immune system needs the energy. And so it's actually very supportive and helpful to do that at the first sign of anything to rest now unfortunately we again we have a culture of soldier on there's in fact there's a whole advertising campaign for something you can take to do just that and but what you're doing in that particular case is suppressing symptoms but extend you're making your immune system work really hard much harder than it needs to um now i i totally get sometimes you just have to but in an ideal world, we're supposed to rest so we can recover fully, completely and quickly, as well as avoid giving it to the rest of our family. And it's also an external indicator to other humans where we're battling something. You know, when people look sick, you're like, oh, <laughs> just stay over there, will you? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so this is the upside of having man flu is that yeah. it <laughs> men were out of bed and I Whereas, <laughs> you know, my wife being a teacher, the worst thing she sees every winter in any 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 peak of colds and flus um, yeah. is these really sick parents and really sick kids being sent to school. Mm-hmm. Um, just absolute yes. crazy thing. It's, it is. It's very silly. And it, I th- it's, it's a real shame that it's a, it's a product of the way society yeah, has evolved. And, you know, I've seen stuff going around about, you know, in our rush to get back to normal, can we at least think about the parts of normal that are worth keeping? And I really think that's one of the old paradigms we need to ditch. Um, I've just seen a question. Um, How I many would- hours of sleep? Yeah, oh, how many hours of sleep? Really interesting. 
This so, is a whole podcast as well. Oh, I know, Helene. There's sort of, I'm going to try and give you the shortest, simplest answer possible. Ultimately, there was a study done that 7.25 hours was the best amount of sleep and the, the less, if you sort of over or undershot that, your um, risk of dying earlier and comorbidities was higher. Now, I have a particular view of this study and it comes from a chronic illness that I've dealt with. I think if you're sleeping less or more than that, it's an indication that something needs help. Either you're sleeping more because your body needs more rest um, or you're sleeping less because you lack some fundamental minerals, for example, to initiate and keep the sleep process in place. Now, I know when I was really sick, I needed about nine to 10 hours. And if I'd forced myself to get up after seven and a quarter hours, that would have compromised yeah, my health. Mm. Yeah, mm. it would have been very bad for me. So look, aiming for eight hours in bed is good. If you know you need more or you feel better on more, take it. Mm. Um, I wouldn't want to go less than seven if you're sleeping less than seven i'd be looking at your glutamate and some other neurotransmitter imbalances that might be happening there but the other thing is because of stress we often see people with um, unhealthy circadian rhythms night owls for example staying up late sleeping in things like that we really should be going to bed an hour or two after sunset and waking up around sunrise and you know, that's sort of what you want to be aiming for. And, of course, with artificial light and blue light, that's really interrupting people's natural sleep rhythms, which is why we see all these blue blocking glasses going on. So um, basically you, you want to be able to wake up naturally and feel good, like you're ready to get out of bed. Now, I don't know many people who can say that's how they feel yeah. when they wake up. Um, but if that's not how you feel, you're probably not getting enough sleep or the quality of it is poor and you want to look into that. That's that's one of the big hallmarks. If if your sleep is not refresh re refreshing you, mm. you need to look into why. And that's given that certain groups like teenagers require a heck of a lot longer sleep. You know, mm. this it's insane that we should be um, going to school, high school, so early when mm. teenagers need so long um, sleep. We always have the white screen issues, of course, and of course, elderly require less. So there's not one sleep that's good. Um, it's that's different right. for different populations. But if you are not feeling rested after mm. your sleep, that's the key that you need to yeah. look into something. Totally, totally. Yeah. So let's go on now, I guess. Uh, let's look at some of the um, things that you might use as a clinician, some mm. of the tools of your profession. Yes. Um, and, you know, the, the question's already been asked, vitamin C. Yes. Okay. So we'll, all right, we'll start with vitamin C. So there are four, five key nutrients actually that I always take in winter at a moderate to low dose just to support my immune system. And these are things I commonly recommend my clients take as well. And they are vitamin C, which probably most people are across, um, vitamin D, which more people are becoming aware of, um, vitamin A, which I think is like kind of languishing in the back closet a little people bit. People are paranoid about it. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, and they also don't really understand why it's so crucial. Um, zinc, uh, I think probably people are across, and selenium, which is actually very, very important for Australia, New Zealand, parts of South America and Asia. And I think has a, a particular prominent role to play as far as getting on top of the current outbreak as well. But let's start with vitamin C. Oh. So vitamin C plays and so many roles in the immune system. So I'm going to give you just a bit of a highlights reel. First of all, it has a role in stimulating the production of white blood cells. So um, giving vitamin C helps you make more soldiers, more soldiers, bigger army, better outcome in battle, right? Um, it stimulates white blood cell function. And so it allows your soldiers to move quicker, move faster, be more effective in their approach to clearing pathogens for you as well. Um, it also helps natural killer cells um, do their activity, um, lymphocyte proliferation. We also know that lymphocytes, um, low lymphocyte levels seem to be a key factor in the severity of um, how people respond to this current virus. So vitamin C plays an important role there. Um, there are a couple of other things, though, that I love about vitamin C, and one of which is it actually speeds up 
white blood cell activity. And so this, it, it boosts your immune system in the vein of your soldiers can move faster and quicker. But I think the most important thing about vitamin C that most people don't know is vitamin C actually stops your white blood cells from killing themselves in battle. So here's the analogy. God, I'm using a lot of war analogies here. I'm sorry, everyone, but it is a war. Okay, basically our immune, I'm a military kid, all right? So unfortunately it's, it's, in, it's in the DNA. Um, but if you, our white blood cells engage in chemical warfare. So many of the approaches that our immune cells or your immune soldiers take is by spewing out really toxic chemicals to kill off the bad guys, the virus, the bacteria, the fungi, whatever it is, the parasite, the protozoa. And unfortunately, those chemicals can actually destroy the white blood cell as well. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. So as human beings, we produce oil on our skin, right? This hydrolipid film is a chemical barrier for us to protect us against environmental stresses. White blood cells actually secrete vitamin C across their cell membranes to do exactly that. So as it's spewing out all of these chemicals to kill off pathogens, it doesn't destroy itself in the process, which is why white blood cells actually concentrate vitamin C at least 80 times more than you find in the bloodstream. Now, if you're actually fighting something off, we can see that go up to 150 times the concentration of what you find in the blood. So they are so hungry for vitamin C. Now, if you're well and you're not fighting anything, you don't need a lot and you can probably get it from your diet if you eat well. But if you're battling something, you need to put a lot more in as a therapeutic intervention in order to have your white blood cells be able to do their job without blowing up in the process. So that's how vitamin C is so crucial. Now, Helene's asked about dosage. Um, again, this is really something that needs to be determined by your practitioner because there are a few people who can't manage high doses of vitamin C. Uh, it also depends on your gastrointestinal health. It also depends on the form of vitamin C. But generally, a safe dosage for health maintenance would be between 1,000 and 2,000 milligrams a day. And I find my clients, if they're fighting off a cold or a flu, can take five to 10,000 milligrams in a day without it affecting their bowel function, um, really showing that their immune system is sucking that up. The key, I think, though, is to use a pH-buffered vitamin C, so something that's pH-neutral. Ascorbic acid on its own is very acidic and will give you heartburn and potentially inflame your digestive tract and if you are taking doses above one to two grams as in you're fighting something off you have to do it in divided doses throughout yes. the day um, did you want to add anything else to that that divided doses I, I find we always like convenience mm. and it's it's to our detriment on so many occasions mm. but particularly <laughs> the intake of you know, nutrients, um, including vitamin C, but also things like magnesium, um, mm. where we really need to look at the adverse event that's going to happen from a massive dose of that nutrient. Mm. We know well vitamin C and magnesium. Mm -hmm. And if we would only just take them in smaller divided doses, you just don't have that issue. Now, I, I get there's the vitamin C flush. I understand that. That's a, sure. a challenge. Yes. What's really interesting to me is just how much people can often tolerate when they are in the midst of an infection mm -hmm. versus when um, they're not in that infection. Um, yeah. it, quite interesting. Yes. Well, so just um, for everyone listening, um, I shared earlier a link to a podcast that you and I did about how sugar disables the immune system. So anyone wanting to dive into that research and understand how it works, um, you're welcome to scroll back up at the end and grab that link. We can find that on FX Medicine under podcasts. I've literally just shared a link, though, on the vitamin C flush so you can understand how that's done and adam thank you for your comment um adam has made a shared a message in the chat saying you can test your threshold which is exactly what the vitamin c flush does it allows you to 
saturate your tissues and identify at what point you reach tissue saturation. And then you can obviously, there's a titrated down um, sort of post flush um, dosing that you can follow. And I actually do the vitamin C flush at the beginning of every winter uh, myself. Uh, And it is something that I do often recommend where it's appropriate for clients who are battling um, a virus or infection of any sort as mm. well. Um, what's interesting is an old tutor of mine got SARS back early 2000s, a bird flu, whatever it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, please do not try this at home, anybody. I swear to on everything you're going to be <laughs> you're going to be in trouble if you do. But I want to share this anecdote just as an illustration of how incredibly intelligent the body is. So in times of good health, you can probably tolerate 5 to 10 grams of vitamin C before it gives you diarrhea. And especially if you take it in divided doses, your body can just continue to suck that up. And in fact, scientists estimated we would have produced around 10 to 15,000 milligrams a day anyway when we used to have that ability. However... When people are unwell, you can take a lot more and your body just sucks up like a sponge. And this person was able to tolerate 180,000 milligrams in a 24-hour period with no loss of bowel tolerance. Now, oral? Oral. (laughs) How did you achieve that? (laughs) So, so obviously. No, don't do this at home. Abs, do not try this at home. You will pass your pancreas in the toilet, okay? But this guy was very sick and his body was able just to suck it up at an, an extreme rate. Now, I, I, that's the only time I've ever heard of that. So I would stick to doing a vitamin C flush or your practitioner's recommendations. However, Jane has just asked about liposomal vitamin C for COVID. And I just want to say that especially if you've got gastrointestinal issues, liposomal C could be a really good choice for you because it's absorbed through the mucosa in the mouth. You can't do a vitamin C flush with it. You can't assess your tissue saturation with that, but it is a very effective way of getting vitamin C into your system and also allow it to stay in your cells a lot longer. So that's another option. Absolutely. Yeah, just, just um, a little point on that. though. There is no data on which form of vitamin C for COVID. There is no data on any vitamin for COVID-19. So please put this in the context of generality. Please Mm. don't think this is a specific treatment that is really not a responsible track to take. No, Um, it's more about um, giving... There's also the point of uh, intravenous vitamin C. Um, Mm. And, you know, I've got to say, if somebody's really sick, I'm a fan of referring them to a GP Mm-hmm. who does intravenous vitamins um, for, and not just vitamin C, but also accessory nutrients, vitamin Bs, groups, um, yes. and zinc, and possibly magnesium as well. And mm. I think this is a key in in this pro-antioxidant mm-hmm. argument. You know, mm-hmm. or, they say that oral is an antioxidant, but and if you give it intravenously, it's a pro-oxidant. We've got to get away from this thinking. The body has elegant feedback mechanisms Mm. and control mechanisms if we would only support them. Um, If you want to give extremely high doses of one single nutrient, whether that's oral or IV, I think Mm. you're going to go down a really dark road. Um, And Mm. and if we think about the redox companions of all of these things, um, we we need to really think about history as well. Mm. You know, we used to use... Um, the oxidised form of CoQ10, why it was the only one available. Did mm-hmm. it work? Yeah. Is there research? Absolutely. But now we've got the reduced form. An ideal form, yeah. You, you know, but that's also, I take this point, that that's also within the cell. So mm-hmm. if you take a pill of the reduced form orally, what happens to it going through the liver absorption, the, lact- uh, the uh, lacteals absorption into the circulation, finally to the cell? So there's always this progression of what happens to that nutrient from having it in a pill putting Mm. it in your mouth and getting into the tip of your finger or your lungs um so i I guess the point i'm making is don't rely on any one vitamin to Mm. be a hero it it won't work no no no. it's a useful tool but if you have failed to give your body the other nutrients Mm. that it requires for immune function you know, it's not, it's really not going to have a huge impact. Although having said that, there are three clinical trials using IV vitamin C over in China. 
Um, one is using six to 12 grams a day, one is using 12 to 24. And these aren't particularly high doses, although they're at the upper end, obviously for infection. And reports are saying that as the vitamin C is entering the blood vessels, the actual respiratory um, distress is le lessening in real time. So it is a great intervention, but we can't overlook all the other nutrients that your immune system needs as well. So we probably should talk about them too, huh? Uh, just a point that I, you you refreshed in my mind, and that was um, the work done by Paul Marrick with vitamin C, uh, intravenous vitamin C with sepsis, never I used know. just vitamin C. It was always vitamin C, B1, and um, uh, corticosteroids. Um, nice. So the, there was also a trial done at Monash University in Australia, and it was negative, failed. Mm. Look at the dose that was used. Too mm. high, yep. not soon enough, um, and not frequent enough. Mm -mm. Mm. You know, I think it's really interesting. We've got to look at the actual trial. I'd love to speak to Paul Marrick about this. Mm. This guy, yeah, and and he was using it for sepsis, not infections, but you've got infections by that stage. We're talking about all the yeah. shut down. But it's really interesting, isn't it? Lower dose, more frequently is better. Mm. Makes sense. So sorry, Amy. You were mm. going to speak. What other what other nutrients are we going to speak about? Uh, vitamin so, D, we brought up that. Vitamin D, yeah. yeah. So we can see a huge difference in the way this is playing out in the southern hemisphere mm -hmm. versus the northern hemisphere. Yeah. And one of those the most obvious elements of that, of course, is the season and that in the northern hemisphere, their vitamin D levels are the lowest they'll ever be. They're horribly low over winter. In Australia, um, even though we're quite a sunny country, even in winter, um, sorry, even in summer, 25% of Australians are deficient and in winter 75% are deficient in vitamin D and that's actually by the current standard or definition of vitamin D deficiency which I actually consider to be medically negligent. Yeah so 50 nanomoles per litre um, is basically the threshold um, and if you were to see your doctor if they're not trained in nutritional medicine or functional medicine if you were 51 or 55 or 49 oh. maybe they'd be like oh you're all right um, when you're definitely not yeah. because we know that if your levels fall below 75 you are twice as likely to get a respiratory tract infection than if they're above 75 and if they're below 50 you are three times at risk and so looking at professor michael hollick's work anything less than 85 is heading towards the danger zone mm -hmm. and according to his research we want to finish summer at 125 150 in order to get through winter appropriately now the reason it's so important for immunity most people know vitamin d is good for your bones it puts calcium into your bones um, in actual fact vitamin d does a bazillion other things regulating genes and all sorts of stuff mm -hmm. But our body uses it to produce antimicrobial peptides. They're called AMPs for short, and they're part, we've got sort of two, two halves of the immune system. You've got the innate immune system, which is non-specific. It's a bit of a, a bush bashing part of your army, if you like. They're, they're not very sophisticated. The workers. And aggressive, yeah. And then you've got the adaptive part of the immune system, which come in with a second, like they're the second responders, and they're a bit more sophisticated and, and specific. Now, AMPs are part of the innate immune system, so they're not specific against um, viruses, although what we do know is looking specifically at the lungs and respiratory tract infections. Our lungs produce a compound called cathelicidin LL37, and it's an antiviral compound that is specific against influenza A, several other strains of influenza, and respiratory tract and viruses in general. Now, if you have sufficient vitamin D in your body, your immune system at the lining of the lungs where the virus might show up can instantly produce its own antiviral compounds. But knowing that even by that definition of 50 nanomoles per liter or less, three quarters of our population in winter are low, it's probably similar for the Western countries over, um, up in the Northern hemisphere. We are just wandering into battle unarmed. Oh. And so, you know, and for you and I, 
I work indoors. I'm also studying. And so I'm, you know, I'm kind of trapped inside six or seven days a week. And even though I'm not sun shy and I'm not sun sensitive, I struggle to manufacture enough vitamin D in winter, sorry, in summer to get through winter time. And this is a problem for most people. We have full-time jobs or full-time activities. And this is one of the most significant things we can do for ourselves in winter or even right now to support our immune system. Yeah. And of course, we get vitamin D for free from the sun. I think it's really interesting though, when we talk about um, the UVB rays from the sun, Mm. Um, the first message that we need to get across people is how do we make vitamin D? And you only make it mm. when the sun is overhead. That's right. Um, between, between the hours of 10 and 2 maximum. Yeah. And in yeah. winter, we're reducing that range because, of course, the sun is lower in mm. the sky. And in fact, sometimes you can make none Yeah, in That's exactly right. Indeed, the next thing that you need in your skin to mm. make vitamin D or pre-vitamin D from 70-hydrocholesterol mm. is heat. Yeah. So if yep. it's cold, even if it's light, you're mm. not going to make, be making much vitamin D. The message is you need to be making sure that you have enough vitamin D early mm. on in the piece to see you through the winter lull. Yes, yes, totally. Mm. Now, I'm mindful we've only got 10 minutes left, so I... <laughs> no. We I can we talk. Can have a second one <laughs> to talk about herbs um but i also want to be able to cover off vitamin a zinc and selenium before we let people go all right so vitamin d that sorry the research was showing smaller more regular doses was better than lump doses that's yes it is yeah yes you're right absolutely right um it seems to be more better utilized by the immune system um given that way which makes sense yeah, and the sun's for free, and it has a lot of other benefits as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about zinc and vitamin A. Mm. They they do a couple of things together that are really important as a as a pair, as well as having their own individual benefits. So they are immune besties when it comes to epithelial health and epithelium is not just the lining of your lungs nose and throat but also the lining of your gut bladder genitourinary mm. tract in general and, and your skin actually um, and they work together to maintain um, the integrity of that tissue and the health of that tissue and so if you're low on either one of those your skin health isn't that good your skin's immune system isn't that good and the same applies for your gut and of course your lungs and your respiratory tract tissue now diving in more specifically to what they do individually vitamin a is key to be able to produce antibodies now a lot of people use the word antibodies but don't really understand what it what it means now antibodies relates to the um, adaptive immune system or the more sophisticated second responders and what it means is your immune system has been presented this pathogen has kind of made a bit of a you know 3d copy of it and also matched whatever chemical your body needs to produce to destroy it meaning that next time the bad guy shows up they're all over it they know exactly how to shut that down much more quickly so quickly sometimes you don't even know you've been exposed or at least your um, immune response is nowhere near as full-on as the first time you got sick with it Now, in order for that to happen in a way that you have a sufficient antibody response and an effective antibody response, you need sufficient levels of vitamin A, which you can only get from animal foods. Now, in times of good health, again, we can um, take pre-vitamin A in the form of carotenoids, fruits and vegetables, but the conversion of beta carotene into vitamin A is very low because, of course, vitamin A can be toxic if you're not using it up. So in terms of an acute immune response, it's usually something we need to supplement with, and it's particularly something you want to look out for for anyone who's vegetarian or vegan who are relying on beta carotene foods um, to provide that precursor, um, not perhaps realising that their immune system may not be able to produce enough retinol in times of defence, you know, and the defence requires it. So if someone's low in vitamin A, we see their antibody response start to fail. 
If they're low in vitamin A, we also see the number of natural killer cells go down. We see cytolytic activity go down, meaning your soldiers are not as good at killing off the bad guys as they normally are. Um, we also see greater epithelial damage. And I want to, I'm making a point about that because we know with this current virus, we're seeing bilateral interstitial pneumonia. We're also seeing um, extreme inflammation in the tissue of the lungs, as well as coagulopathies and, and other things. Oh. But we know that vitamin A is really important, along with zinc, to um, preserve the epithelial tissue. It helps to repair it quicker, but also limit the damage that is that's done when you inhale a pathogen that impacts that tissue. So, of course, there are upper limit considerations, particularly for women um, of childbearing age, people with liver challenges, um, yeah. anyone who's been on a Wacutane, um, that, you know, this is something you want to be advised a dosage on through your own functional medicine practitioner. Um, but it is absolutely a crucial part of the immune toolkit alongside zinc. Um, before I dive into zinc, did you want to share anything else on vitamin A, or are you happy for me just to carry on? Oh, just, just uh, very quickly, the parent. Many people, are, many practitioners included, are paranoid about vitamin A, including I was. Um, yep. It's really bad syntax. Um, I was too. Mm. Uh, so, one of the other points about vitamin A is um, the International Vitamin A Working Group with the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. So if anybody's interest, interested in that work, they can look that up, the IVAG group. Um, <laughs> and it states that it is safe for a pregnant woman to take as much as, oh, jeepers, I can't remember the IU now. Anyway, it was, it was higher than the um, supposed safe level. Mm -hmm. And that was including supplementation. But anyway, look up the IVAG working group. The other thing is that vitamin A is used for making um, neurotransmitters as well. Mm -hmm. So isn't that interesting about the stress response and things like that? Yeah, yeah totally. Mm -hmm. um, zinc, by the way, is required to deliver vitamin A around the body. If you're low in zinc, vitamin A gets stuck in the liver and, of course, can cause liver damage as a result. So zinc is required to produce retinol binding protein, and that is the transporter that delivers vitamin A everywhere else you need it. But in addition to that, zinc has direct antiviral properties. It is really important for normal development and function of both um, B cells, T cells, neutrophils, macrophages. In fact, the innate and the adaptive immune system require it to function properly. Um, of course, it's important for mucous membranes, so epithelial tissue health. Um, but what we know is zinc deficiency actually decreases our ability to mount an immune response, particularly to viruses. Um, we have reduced thymulin, reduced enzyme and transcription factor activation. We know that lower zinc levels increase your susceptibility to infection and by the way zinc is depleted rapidly when you're stressed and everyone is really worried about what's going on um, not just getting sick but there are of course lots of other things that are coming along with our you know response and guidelines to what's happening and that is going to be further weakening people's immune response and you can um, you can and you can look up um the prevalence of, of zinc deficiency in the Australian diet by looking up um, FSANS, so mm -hmm. the Food Standards Australia New Zealand, and it yep. goes through various age groups and their deficiency of intake. So we've got mm -hmm. an extremely old continent. Of course, mm -hmm. there's no zinc in the soil, so of course there's no zinc in the food. But yeah. uh, it's interesting how so many people, orthodox practitioners, I will say here, will say, mm -hmm. if you eat a good balanced diet, you don't need vitamin supplements, da, 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 if you. Mm -hmm. One is who does. The second yeah. one is look at the stats. Well, also, we're talking about using them therapeutically here yeah. as opposed to just maintaining the RDA or the status quo when your health is good. Yeah. Um, and there's a big difference that and a fundamental gap good. in, you know, some areas of education. The last thing I'll say about zinc is that it blocks RNA polymerase, which is the enzyme that allows viruses to replicate. 
and spread throughout your body. And it's interesting that one of the medications that they are currently using um, is a zinc ionophore, which increases the zinc uptake into the cell. Now, I'm not saying that's, only, that's its only mechanism of action, but we know that zinc has an antiviral effect once it's inside the cell. And by boosting that, it can have obviously an increased result. So zinc is, is pretty key. The last nutrient I'll touch on um, is selenium. Now, selenium is probably, again, you know, we could talk about any one of these nutrients for an hour and yeah. still not be have a complete conversation. Um, so I'm going to keep it quite brief because we've got just a couple of minutes left. But two things, um, obviously, selenium-dependent enzymes are um, used to produce glutathione. And glutathione is a key nutrient. I can see someone asked about that earlier. We won't be touching on that today, but we can cover that in the next episode. Um, and so in terms of antioxidant defenses to help preserve and protect the immune system, it's crucial. But here's actually the ultimate um, important thing that selenium is, I think we need to be you know, really mindful of our intake. Viruses mutate rapidly in selenium deficient hosts. So what that means is human beings that are low in selenium are wonderful incubators to allow viruses to mutate into new, stronger, evolved versions of themselves. And China is completely devoid of selenium in their soils. And Australia and New Zealand are also mostly selenium deficient soils. And so if we're not either taking a supplement to maintain the RDA or we're actively eating three Brazil nuts a day or other selenium rich foods, we are actually part of the problem, to be honest. Um, we are providing an environment, I mean, obviously sugar, vitamin C, zinc, all of that other stuff, but we're providing an environment that allows a virus to mutate rapidly. We now know, well, as of three weeks ago, there were eight different strains of SARS-CoV-2 going around. In a week or two, I'm sure there's going to be more. And, you know, that is, of course, it's, that's, it's a natural process, but it is accelerated when a virus infects a human being who doesn't have sufficient selenium levels. And so I think as, you know, as much as all of the other things we're doing are for each other, staying home, wearing masks, washing our hands, this is another thing that we can turn our attention to that will support humankind as far as getting out of this quicker um, goes. Before we wrap up and just uh, handle everybody's questions, Amy, um, mm -hmm. We cannot do justice if we don't cover really quickly the mm. not just antioxidant ability, but yes. the mucolytic ability of things like NAC. And yeah. the other key thing that I just like you to <laughs> say a few words on, uh, what about this, the mucolytic effect and anti-inflammatory effect of things like proteolytic enzymes? Mm. Okay, so... Um... With regards to any respiratory tract infection, actually, we have mucus produced and the mucus is a result and has properties. There are numerous, but one of them is to try and wash away the incoming pathogen. But of course, that clogs up our airways, makes it difficult to breathe. And in the case of COVID-19, we're seeing massive mucus plugs in the lungs. So anything that supports the fluidity of the mucus and reduces the risk of sticky, thick mucus is, of course, worth considering. Mm. And I stopped up on NAC and already have proteolytic enzymes in the cupboard for that very reason, because they are both very powerful as far as their mucolytic, mucolytic properties go, um, especially NAC or N-acetyl cysteine and for that reason it's something you want to be very cautious using um, ongoingly um, however um, it's something that you should have in your natural medicine cupboard for cold and flu anyway because it helps to clear the airways more effectively and it's absolutely something i think um, is worthwhile having especially right now yeah i think um I'll included in the proteolytic enzyme activity yeah. is dampening inflammation, which is key to any chronic um, uh, respiratory immune infection. How about mm -hmm. I say that? Yes. Um, 
So, Amy, I think we're done. I mean, as you said, there are so many intricacies of this. We haven't gone into the dosage per day, per month of vitamin D, for instance. Mm. Um, go 5,000. Um, <laughs> that's, well, that's what I take. In winter, I, I go yeah. 5,000. Yeah, there's no, there's no data in an adult of less than 10,000 IU showing toxicity unless there's sarcoidosis or something weird. That's Ryan Holbeath. But yep. I'd like to thank you so much for taking us through what you have done today. Um, I mean, you, you, I know that you've got a personal expertise in this because, as you say, you have a health condition which you manage. Mm -hmm. And so you really are clued up on the, the issues of immunity. And I thank you so much for taking us through your ex and sharing with your expertise today um, on FX Medicine. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was a real pleasure. It was, it's very nice, I think, to be able to share with people practical and yeah. effective and safe um, extra strategies um, to support themselves. And obviously everything we've said here today applies to your regular wintertime lurgies as well. Uh, so I sure hope everyone got something out of it for themselves and we look forward to seeing you on the next one to talk about the herbs, hey? Okay. All right. Um, can I just ask before we uh, go, is there any other, more questions that we have to um, um, address? Let me scroll up. Most people are still here. So I will just have a look and see um, if there's anything else um, we can answer for people as it relates to these nutrients. A um, couple of comments on vitamin A levels. Oh, Helene asked, um, as far as NAC goes, powder or tablets. Um, I um, have powder because that way you can up and down the dose for all family members. But if you want to take it in a tablet or capsule form, it doesn't impact its efficacy in any way. It just limits your ability to adjust the dosage. Um, the enzyme the, name, oh, sorry, sorry, what were you going to say? Sorry, I was just going to say there was these brilliant ones from Germany that I once saw. And the only problem, of course, with the German nutrients that you get, they're really great. And then you see that they've got um, acesulfame in them. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. Why can't you put stevia? <laughs> There's some good ones available in Australia, actually. I ordered some from Melbourne. Um, and then the proteolytic enzymes. So there are lots of different enzymes that have proteolytic activity and you can often find them in digestive enzyme formulas as well. And they will usually have something that ends in A's. So A's indicates that it's an enzyme and it'll usually say protease or proteases. Um, but papain from papaya and bromelain oh, from yeah. pineapple are also proteolytic enzymes. And you can often find those in a supplement form in combination with other proteases um, or just on their own. Um, any last questions? Can I just cover, um, if anybody wants further information, of course, on yeah. any of these nutrients, if you want you know, any of the trials that have been mentioned or mm -hmm. some of the research articles, please contact us at uh, info at fxmedicine.com.au, drop us a line. Also mm -hmm. on our social media platforms. So, yes, um, I think we will, yeah, let's do another one on herbs. Um, <laughs> we'll send the invitation out. And I also noticed for anyone who missed in the chat, we will send out the show notes with the replay and include all of the links and evidence that we touched on today. So you can actually go and have a look at the studies, look at the sources mm, and right. get a deeper understanding of, of why we've talked about what we have uh, today. In the meantime... Uh, we're going to try and out ninja our immune, sorry, out ninja nature. <laughs> Thank you, Amy, for joining us. Good luck with that. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. <laughs>